Don't miss the Can-Am Holiday Volleyball Showcase, North America's premier men's volleyball event. Experience and enjoy world-class athletes, coaches, and competition in Toronto this holiday season, December 28th to 31st at the Toronto Pan-Am Sports Centre. Get your tickets while they last at www.cahbs.com. Early bird pricing ends soon. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Passing Times. My name is Josh Nickel. Unfortunately, Dallas couldn't join us tonight. However, we do have a stud of a guest who's going to do all the talking, so hopefully you won't miss Dallas too much. Our guest this week is head performance analyst for the U.S. men's indoor team. He's coached for several NCAA teams, so we'll pick his brain on that. And he also got to start in performance analysis in a fun way, so I can't wait to cover his whole career. Please welcome to the show, Nate Go. How are you, Nate? Thanks for doing this. Yeah, so we've got a lot to cover, but I think the the exciting one I'd like to start with was what was the prep like going into uh, your Olympic qualifier, and what was the feeling when you guys uh, confirmed the spot and booked your ticket to Tokyo? Uh, USA Volleyball has similar challenges to to us in Canada, where a lot of players are overseas. So, how much time as a squad did you have to prep? Is, is Anaheim still home base? And I guess how long did the team have to kind of unite and get ready before you went to that competition? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good. I mean, yeah, just like you said, all all of our players, uh, they, unless they're coming from the university system in the U. 
U.S. Uh, they all play abroad, mostly in Europe. Uh, and so a couple, like we had a couple guys playing in Brazil. Uh, so yeah, we, we don't get a whole lot of time to train. Uh, being in VNL, so we kind of have to be pretty strategic with how we use. Uh, uh, I think we had maybe two weeks of practice before uh, before going into our first travel week of VNL. Um, and then from there, it's just a little bit of, you know, kind of strategic. How, how are we going to use each week? Uh, you know, which, which 14 players are we going to we going to name to the travel roster each week uh, based on the things that we need? Do we need to get some players some rest? Do we need to get uh, some players some, some reps? Um, you know, unfortunately for us, last year we hosted BNL finals, so we had the autumn. Uh, auto qualifier into the into finals. Uh, so we had a little bit of freedom to be able to kind of take a look at some younger guys, give those younger guys a shot, and see how they fared against uh, international competition, especially some of these guys who had just finished playing uh, in college, like Josh Tuaniga, Kyle Lindsay, TJ, Falcon. So it was nice to see them and uh, how they stacked up against uh, some of the bigger teams, I think, the first weekend. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned uh, a couple challenges of maybe just not having that much video or data on everybody. Just to give our listeners an impression of how much work you do, how many matches would you typically like on a team before you start noticing tendencies or maybe some stuff that the coaching staff's asking for? Like, how much information do you want before you kind of make it an informed decision about what you guys are going to do? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know if there's a necessarily a set number of matches, I'd say. Uh, I mean, certainly by the time we're getting into third, uh, probably like the fourth, if you could be an L, we start getting a pretty good sample size of uh, what teams, you know, what teams are playing with and what they like to do. So, once we get to week four, you're talking about having about nine matches per team uh, in the current in the current season. Uh, and so, and then by the time we were playing, you know, the major tournament at the end of the summer, then you you've got a pretty solid base of matches for BNL. Hopefully, you know, somewhere between 15 to uh, 19 matches if they're playing for BNL, uh, playing BNL, uh, and if not. You know, Throwing in friendly matches and things like that. So yeah, I mean, just being able to go through those matches. The the tough part with international calls is obviously anybody can you can bring anybody up um, into your roster, and so it's uh, it gets a little bit challenging. You don't necessarily know for sure, and you know, teams are going to play. What players are are they going to bring to to certain tournaments, um, and so. Sometimes you, you're prepping for you know uncertain lineup, and, and when you go to to the tournament and go play, and they roll out to a different team. And so sometimes it get a little squirrely, and hopefully your team's able to adjust. Nice, yeah. Is it fair to say, like, if they change the right side, or I maybe the setter has the biggest impact on the squad, that it kind of throws off every tendency, everything you guys prep, right? Like it's. It, Certain things can really throw off the dynamic and the game plan you guys have put in, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I think one thing that's been really 
how I kind of wanted to restructure the way that we approach scouting opponents um, is to get away from to get away from scouting teams based on rotation as kind of the primary um, factor variance for a team. Um, so what I mean by that is like instead of pulling up information like what are they sliding on in rotation one regardless of the lineup they're in, um, kind of looking at uh, trying to trying to make the primary uh, factor that we're looking at more personnel based, right? So more as for me it's more about hey when this player is on the court, you know, and he's in the front row house that player affecting distribution. Um, for example, we're, we're looking at you know, scouting just center distribution. If this player is in the front row, how is that player affecting distribution um, in this situation as opposed to when they're in the back row? If this, this outside player is in the front row, how, how do they change? Or how does the distribution change when they're in the front row? And so on and so forth. So we're trying a little bit from specifically. Um, Looking at rotation one, two, three, four, five, and six, um, with the exception of maybe your rotation one when you're, you're that, in that unique situation where you're uh, opposite an outsider flips um, and serve receives. I mean, there's certainly some consideration there. Um, aside from that, trying to get away from them. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be in Gatineau when you came to Canada and helped train some coaches in uh, data volley. And I know you mentioned that. To me, as a player, I think it'd be more freeing just to identify. Okay, Matt Anderson's in the front row. That means we're going to do this versus trying to say, oh, they're in rotation six and they like to do this 35% of the time and this distribution. Like, I think as a player, it's just simple to kind of break things down to if this, then that, right? So have you found that your players have, have found it more freeing and they're, they're looking at the bench less for information and they can kind of identify little things on their own more? Yeah, that's, that's my hope. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I have gotten a ton of feedback about it one way or the other from our guys. Um, but that, that was kind of what I was trying to accomplish in, in making that change. Is, um, yeah, I don't want, I don't, the last thing I would want for our guys, you know, to be thinking about is, oh, in rotation one, they said the opposite long ago 12% of the time. Like, I don't need, I don't, I don't want them to be thinking about specific numbers like that. Um, and, you know, just like you, you brought up when I, when I was talking about the course, like, yeah, I want them to, you know, it's a visual game, right? And so if they see me, okay, hey, I haven't got, Listeners, your start because I think it's a very impressive story. So, uh, you you played in high school, and then when you went to university, kind of the program you chose and the school you chose is that how you got into stats, or what kind of got you into this? And then what made you invest so many hours to become just like a wizard? I, I wish I had more video of kind of that course and just to show the way you were buzzing around the keyboard and all the stuff you were picking up live that took us four, five, six tries to get it all. But uh, what really sparked your interest in this field? Um, yeah, you know, I. 
played in high school, um, and even when I was in high school, I was also the student manager for our girls' high school team. And, uh, you know, I, I fell in love with the sport like, from the moment I started playing, playing in my freshman year. And, uh, you know, I was taking stats and paper for, for high school team, for girls' high school team. And, uh, and when I graduated from high school, uh, the, my, the girls' high school coach at my high school uh, kind of encouraged me to, to reach out to the head coach at Cal Poly, where I went for an undergrad, um, before I got I even stepped foot on campus to start my first class. Uh, and just reach out and say, hey, like, you guys, you guys need any help? Like, I mean, it's a student for the girls' high school team, and uh, I'd love to be involved and do that for you guys. So it was kind of just, I wanted to just be around the sport uh, at that point. Um, I knew pretty early I wanted to be a teacher, actually. That's my my original plan was actually to be a high school teacher. I just really enjoyed you know, the teaching aspect, the teaching
that was kind of a no-brainer. Uh, so yeah, I ended up there for three seasons. Uh, then I got to coach at University of Portland for one year after, after I finished my master's at Nebraska. And then kind of out of the blue, after my first season with Portland, I got a call from the men's national team assistant saying they had a position, uh, the technical coordinator position was open. Yeah, two thousand. This was in the end of two thousand fourteen, the beginning of two thousand fifteen. They were recommended to me, uh, or I was recommended to them, um, to see if I was interested in the job. And so, when you get that call, it's uh, pretty tough to turn down. And so, that's how I've gotten to where I am ever since. Uh, yeah, it's been a wild ride. It's been certainly incredibly grateful and to, to be where I am today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, any chance you were in Nebraska when Canadian superstar Sarah Pavin was there? Um, I was, she was just before, uh, before I think she graduated in 2007. Uh, so actually, one of my first road trips to Cal Poly was playing against the University of Nebraska uh, in Lincoln. And so I think she was on the team back then. My Nice. So you shared how you kind of self-taught yourself this program. Is it true that you would go back to your dorm and you you would practice data volley when everybody else was, you know, watching football or playing video games? Like you were you were pretty hooked and pretty self-taught on this. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Honestly, like I had my laptop playing ironically uh, Cal Poly versus Nebraska in 2006. And I would just watch that video over and over again. Um, and, and, and for all the for, is listening that does data volley now um, at the time you couldn't watch the video within the program right and, and you couldn't sync it wasn't syncing the codes as you were watching the video within data volley so i had to watch it on a separate screen and i had and that's kind of how it forced me to get it because if i messed up i had to stop code and then you would sync it up to the top you have to find the next play that you're you started off as just a pen and paper guy is there anything you would recommend maybe to a high school or a club team coach that maybe they don't have access to data volley but there's there's a few things that you think every team should kind of track for their own performance um i, I don't know that there's necessarily a one side you know a one one stack it's all kind of a thing you know and i think as a coach you know if you can identify like hey there's something going on with some aspect of our team right whether that's Maybe if it's our out-of-system attack, it's our in-system attack, then really it's more about, hey, can we, we find a good way to track that information um, and then be able to look back at that information and can that, can that help us diagnose what, you know, what, we're, what we're perceiving is working so well, right? Um, and obviously that's, that's very Instead of saying, hey, is there one stat to, to look at, you know, across the board, I would say, 
So with you kind of always being at two levels where you're at the, the college and university level and you're also at the international level, uh, do you notice a big jump? Like what, what kind of sets apart the international level right now? Because the NCAA is an extremely high level, but are there any trends or differences that you notice that kind of stand out right away? Thing, um, you mentioned that just international players can do a whole bunch more and they just have these great like toolkits. Is there anything specifically that the teams give you a trouble maybe because they do this really well? Like, Is there anything that you're running into that, uh, that the game's kind of evolving where if, if teams are in system and everything's rolling, they're just really hard to stop because, I don't know, maybe it's USA and you guys run the big so well or teams are just serving better. Like, Is there anything coming in the men's game that you know, their execution is so good that, that when they're on, they're on? Yeah, I think probably the, the, the one thing that stands out the most uh, in the last few years uh, is if you watch uh, teams like Argentina, certainly uh, uh, when Julio Velasco was coaching uh, with Ron and Argentina, he, uh, you know, he was kind of going to figure out how with these, with these teams who are not quite as visible as, you know, as your Italy's and your Poland's and your Russia's, how are you going to win those matches um, with less specific players? And so you'll see, I think, a lot of, a lot of, if you watch middle routes right now in the system, um, you'll see a lot of middles running these traditional, you know, 
tight wing or gap routes where it's pretty just kind of straight on into a spot towards the dead. Uh, you're starting to see a lot more middle routes where they're uh, running kind of flatter along the net and then just kind of picking uh, and choosing are they going to stop here and you know, the center's going to send this ball out to them or, or are they going to keep going and, and you know, jump towards the center? Um, and so it makes it adds uh, as this lap is uh, as a, um, this variable of you know where is this middle going to this ball um, kind of not not so dissimilar from uh, what you see on the women's side with the slide right like the slide you can you can set this this ball behind your middle the slide it or can take it off uh, wherever they choose to and so that's what makes that's certainly what makes the, the slide one of the harder, um, harder attacks to block against or defend against because you just don't know for sure where this ball is going to be attacked from the or it's a little bit more difficult to create where that's going to happen. So on the men's side, you're starting to see that but in front of the center um, with these kind of drifting and floating routes, uh, as we call it. Um, and so you, 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 you a great example is our match. Our first match in the World Cup against Argentina, they played incredibly well. They passed really well, and we could not stop their middles because they were just uh, they were just doing that. They're, they're running that offense really well right now. Understood? Um, you see that certainly with with some other teams. Iran still does a fair amount of that. Certainly, we you know, we've been working on that uh, system of offense. I think even Canada has been. So if that's the trend, do you ever see the slide coming into the men's game? Or, or what, in your opinion, makes that so effective in the women's game that the men's just haven't adopted? Is it just the C-ball is so effective? Or what's what's kind of holding back the slide for both genders here? Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest uh, the biggest attraction from the, from the slide happening on the men's side is just that, uh, especially at the higher levels, you're going you're gonna to have offices for were pretty terminal even from room. Um, and so if you run a slide, it, it just makes it adds a layer of complexity on that right side of the court um, where you're if you have a big stick that that's that's on the right side, you, you don't want to sacrifice his ability to kill balls there uh, with a middle who's trying to run a slide, right? I mean there have been teams uh, Probably most specifically Brazil, wherever run slides, be uh, it with uh, Lucas uh, at times. Uh, he's he's run a slide every now and again, uh, and even uh, maybe like ten years ago when uh, Dante was still playing, like he was he was hitting some slides in row one, um, you know. And so uh, it's yeah, I think that you don't see it a ton at the highest level, largely because of big opposites that you have um, because if you watch on the women's side uh, on the women's side they will run that slide and you'll have you'll see their opposite running sometimes uh, up the middle towards the big um, but on the men's side you usually have outside hitters also on the big so now you're just kind of you're taking out one of those options just to be able to the slide yeah definitely yeah thank you for that um, so hopefully our listeners have heard of, and they're also fans of, of the Coach Your Brains uh, podcast. It's very popular in the U.S. Um, 
a lot of U.S. people have been on that show, and they've they've shared some secrets between like Spira, uh, Andrea Becker, and Reed Pretty. With all all the stats you're collecting, are a lot of the decisions that uh, the coaching staff's making based on evidence that you're giving? Like one thing that stands out that everyone kind of nods their head at and makes sense is the the rumor is the serving strategy is because we're not connected. Like if I go back and miss my serve and you're next, you should go back and hit your best serve. That we're not going to talk about missed serves or missing two in a row because it's not connected, right? I think that's easier said than done were you kind of a part of that decision that you know we need everybody going back and hammering serves or we're just not going to put teams out of system um i, I would say that i was part of uh I, I would say i was i was part of the decision of coming or of implementing that philosophy i think that's a philosophy that uh Spiral and uh and andrea Brecht, andrea becker had come to far far before long before i was even around um, and I've uh, certainly I've now you know worked with uh, with both of them for the last five four and a half years now five five seasons with the national team and I'm all in on that philosophy. Um, the information that I have and I think I may have even shared uh, maybe that that slide uh, I showed that uh, infographic with the, with the scatter plot. At least with our team specifically, is that it works for us, and yes, it is very hard to, to, to implement because there's so much pressure from the outside, and even certainly still from the inside. Um, I'm just, it's not fun to watch volleyball when there's a ton of serves, right? But looking at the data that we have, we've seen that even in, even in big matches. Serving tough, that is the bigger factor in us having success as far as winning and losing volleyball matches than it is about serving in or out. And we've, we've won matches where we've missed a lot, we've won matches where we've served in a lot. Um, but the, the more defining factor in that has been matches that we've lost largely over the times when uh, our opponents are handling your serves. Uh, better than, than our most average for us. Unfortunately, we've, we've been able to have some pretty good serving performances with, with some big matches because of that. Uh, but, I mean, certainly I, I wouldn't necessarily say that that should be the philosophy for everyone in every team because, you know, depending on your personnel, maybe you have, you have different strengths. Uh, but for our team, in particular, we have some players who can go back and get some really good serves. So that's and, and then obviously we couple that with the philosophy that that uh, John and in fact and Andrew Becker have brought to the team, and that's just kind of the direction that we decided that we want to go. So, with your your high level of experience, what advice would you give to maybe some youth coaches who we have access to to a lot of the stuff that that international teams are doing now either through podcasts or internet you can google a lot of cool stuff um how would you determine like something that's really cool that maybe we just can't do in our gym versus something you would plug away at right like if you were to watch usa right now i'm sure every like 17 u and 18 u club coach is thinking man we got to run bigs everybody's got a jump serve did you see how they move max holt around like what, what would be the difference or what's the big uh, determining factor for you guys to determine like we can invest in this and we'll get better at this skill versus you know what that works for them but we just can't pull it off like how patient would you be with some of these skills that you guys are doing with the youth team? Uh, 
I guess my question is, how patient should like a youth coach be with like maybe the USA serving strategy? Like, how long would you wait to figure out if it works for them, or if they see how fast you guys are running the pick? Like, how long should they spend training that versus, you know, what saying it works for you guys and we're just not going to be a copycat because we don't have the personnel? Like, how would you suggest you know installing skills and kind of being inspired by the high level versus kind of understanding your own limits? I guess. Cool. Yeah, that, that is a, that is a good question. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I think uh, I don't know if this answer is going to be particularly great. So this might be one that you <laughs> you end up cutting out. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I think I think part of that is knowing your personnel for sure. You know, what are you? You know, I think I forget who it was exactly, but um, you know, I think there's a saying that's don't do tactically what you can't do technically, right? So I think certainly that that plays a factor in should you be doing something? Is there something that you can do if, if, if you cannot be doing something technically, whether that's you know a physicality issue or whatever it is, um, then maybe that shouldn't be something that you're trying to do tactically. Um, and then on the other hand, it's also, you know, what do you value as a coach, right? So, What's important, you know, for first bra, certainly his serving, that serving philosophy, as you talked about, that's that's an important factor for us, and certainly that's uh, how we've kind of trained to have success, or at least that's a big factor in our success. Um, and he's willing to endure the you know the negative aspects of trying to implement that philosophy, you know, hearing it from the outside, like, hey, you guys missed some serves, and, you know, you guys need to make more serves, blah, 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 and, and you know, can you, can you be able to withstand that out, that external pressure, uh, and know, A, that that's, you know, you're being true to your own philosophy, and B, you know, if you have the data to back up that says, hey, you're having success with these serves out, necessarily, whether it's in or out, then can you stick to those guns even though it's uncomfortable um, because you're getting so much pressure from the outside? Um, I don't know if that answers that question. <laughs> no, no, that, that's great. Um, has there ever been a situation with either your NCAA teams or, or with Team USA where maybe the evidence is leaning one way, but you like the coaching staff or maybe yourself still want to plug away? Like, is there you're very technical and very data-driven, but is there like kind of an art-science battle that you kind of experience sometimes? Oh, absolutely, for sure. You know, and I think uh, one of the things that I've been trying to be better about um, with all the information that I gather is uh, trying to add a time component to the things that we look at, because I think certainly as when I, when I first got started and even for a long time after that, you know, a lot of the information that we have is just kind of, hey, we're going to look at all these matches and, and bunch it into an average and see what our average looks like and where does that average compared to everybody else's average, right? And, you know, I, 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 I after a while, I just didn't feel super comfortable uh, reporting just that number um, because when you, when you bunch all these things into an average, you start losing a bunch of context, right? It's like, hey, well, your average is here, but you played a bunch of teams that maybe, yeah, they don't pass. We know that they don't pass very well, so maybe that bumped up the, that average. Or maybe you played a bunch of really good teams, and maybe your numbers don't look quite as good for that. 
Um, and then maybe if you're looking at practice data, like, hey, maybe there was this player, you know, had a bunch of good days, and then all of a sudden he had one really bad day. And if you look at the final average number, he doesn't look like he was so good there. But if you were able to kind of tease out that, that timepiece and show, hey, like day by day, the cumulative average was actually really good up until this day. And then you can go back and, and diagnose, like, oh, hey, what happened in this day? Maybe he, uh, you know, his, his dog died and just wasn't really feeling great and didn't have a good practice. You know, and so being able to kind of tease that kind of information out has really helped uh, just bring some more context and bring some, some better understanding into our decision making with some of that data. Yeah, you just touched on the importance of context, maybe more in an NCAA setting just because there's so many more teams that maybe internationally. What are some of the context things you look for right away? Like on the beach right now, we're experiencing it where we might scout a team and they just played against Sarah Pavin as the blocker and they didn't hit a lot of line shots, but maybe against a less physical blocker, they hit line a lot, right? So we're trying to look for, again, not looking at the average, but what's maybe the physicality or what's helping on the beach is just looking for a doppelganger team that that might actually give a better picture for. So in your experience, again, with this mountain of data you have, what are some context things that you like to do with your teams? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Just like that, like, you know, you know certainly, can I look at, hey, uh, one of the things that I want to look deeper into is when this attacker is hitting against this blocker, what, you know, or, or can I can I kind of add, make a list of, hey, when this attacker is hitting against certain, certain blockers, is he, is, are his shots different than when he's hitting against a different group of attackers? For example, if I'm looking at an outside hitter's range, uh, and I'm seeing, hey, what can I, can I look at when he's hitting against small setters like Community from France or against Bruce Perron? How do those shots differ than when he's uh, got maybe Michael Christians? Uh, Michael Christians in front of him, or or Kovalev from Russia, who's a big, big guy. Um, you know, can I can I find different ways to to you know kind of tease out, add that context in there, so that I'm not just looking at averages and uh, you know being able to tell a better story with that information that I have. Nice, very cool. Yeah, it sounds like there's. Definitely some art and science stuff going on and everything you guys do, which is super interesting. Um, with all the experience you have, is there any player either on Team USA or, or international players that you've just become a fan of that, you know, you're always statting, you're always kind of viewing the game analytically that way, but is there anyone you're just a fan of because you think they're, they're so entertaining or they're so skilled? Uh, I would say I was thinking about it. And uh, I'm all the things that I've seen at this level of volleyball, nothing, I don't think there's anything that still makes me just kind of drop my jaw other than watching Taylor Sander hit a big. That's probably the most impressive thing that I've seen, that I ever see all the time. And I, it, it never gets old for me. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I just run it several times a match, you could just sit there and watch clips of it. It's, it's a thing of beauty. I mean. <laughs> now, did you guys inherit that from his BYU days, or did you guys polish it up? Like, what makes him so special? Uh, certainly, yeah. I mean, that at BYU, um, and then once once he he's gone to the national team, he's been doing it for a while under 
uh, under the system that that Sparrow has implemented. Um, and so certainly there's been some polishing up of that, but I think there's just something to, you know, he's, he's maybe a little bit on the lower, you know, below average height-wise uh, for out, you know, elite outside hitters, and, and he's just got sweet vertical and just when he unloads on the pick, it's just, uh, it's, it's just one watch. Movember is the leading charity dedicated to changing the face of men's health around the world. This Movember, whatever mustache you grow, will save a bro. Donating to Movember will help raise funds and awareness for prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and mental health and suicide prevention. There are lots of volleyball bros growing their mall that you can donate to, or if you don't know anyone, yours truly, in Passing Dime's own, Josh Nickel, is raising funds for Movember. Head over to mobro, M-O-B-R-O dot C-O slash Josh Nickel, J-O-S-H-N-I-C-H-O-L, to donate. All right, Nate, I think we've, we've taken a lot of your time. Thanks again for, for making the time to do this. Um, I, I don't know if you've listened to an episode, but we always like to close it out with just a, a unique situation that maybe volleyball, you know, it lets us travel and lets us meet all kinds of new people. But every once in a while, it kind of puts us in a unique situation that we wouldn't have been presented without volleyball. So. Uh, do you have anything that our, our listeners can kind of learn about you and maybe something that didn't go quite to plan because of volleyball? Um, yeah, I think this is probably more of a positive uh, version of that and you know, for positive answers to that. Um, so, you know, certainly we get to travel all, all over the world, which is an incredible experience. Um, and and the, the bummer is a lot of the times we're, you know, we're in the hotel or the arena, so we don't necessarily get to get out too much. Um, but our uh, our Olympic qualification tournament this last summer was in or this, this summer was in the Netherlands and it backed up into uh, a planned two week vacation that uh, that we had planned for everybody, uh, staff and athletes included. And I opted to stay in the Netherlands uh, and just kind of play tourist for an extra week after our after our Olympic qualification tournament. And uh, it was just kind of cool. I during during one of the matches. Normally, uh, during these during the international matches, they have us sitting uh, pretty far up in the stands, and you know, we're kind of isolated from everybody. Uh, but this time, they put us in the front row uh, of the, you know, the end zone bleachers, and you know, it, it, there was a nice crowd, and for all for most of these matches in the in uh, in the Netherlands and. Uh, a, a brother and sister just happened to come and sit in the seats next to me. I was kind of on the far edge of the front row of bleachers, um, and there was reserved. It was supposed to be reserved for just you know team scouts, team officials, and things like that. But um, you know, not to perpetuate you know any stereotypes, but these they seem pretty friendly, and so I was just like, all right, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not gonna worry too much about it. They can hang out and sit sit next to me and, and so you know they were sitting next to me during one of the matches and uh at one point uh one of them you know taps me on the shoulder during a break and she says hey you know you have the entire row behind those fans behind you just staring at whatever you're doing on the laptop like they're after <laughs> um and so i just kind of laughed and I kind of got us talking, and uh, I was like, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to be staying in the Netherlands for an extra week, and um, do, you, do you have any uh, recommendations of what I should do, or you know, where to hang out, or anything like that?" And, 
And so they gave me some recommendations. You know, like, hey, we're going to come back for the match tomorrow. Do you mind if we, you know, sit here, uh, sit here again tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, no, you guys seem cool. And you guys are welcome to come hang out. And, uh, and so they came back. They were hanging out or they sat with me again and you know, got to chat a little bit more. And, uh, you know, just the next, next thing you know, I'm, in, you know, I'm hanging out and still hanging out in, in the country and on my vacation. And, we're able to, to meet up. I actually ended up playing with uh, it was his brother and sister, and the brother played for like a second or third uh, division club team in the Netherlands, and so I ended up playing in their practice one night uh, in their town, Menlo, uh, and just ended up hanging out with them and had a great time. And, you know, just just kind of a reminder of how how amazing it is that I get to do what I do and you know, have the opportunity to meet people around the world and make friends uh yeah just really neat experience and feel super fortunate to, to be doing what i get to do nice I, I love that as much as i enjoy our, our beach players explaining how they get lost or held up at gunpoint or lose their cell phone or their passport you know it's nice to have a positive volleyball story where volleyball is bringing people together so thanks for sharing that one yeah absolutely um, you mentioned you're you're now with uh, UCLA on the men's side. Are we going to see you in Canada over the holiday break? I believe there's a Can-Am happening here in Toronto. That's right. I'll be in Toronto during that time. Uh, again, I've taken enough of your time. Just maybe last question. Uh, because you guys are in preseason, is that the, the benefit of playing some Canadian teams? Where I think uh, our universities versus your universities, it's usually very competitive. I think men's volleyball might be the, the best one across the board if we're talking, you know, basketball, hockey, like other sports. Um, what are you guys looking forward to? Is it just a chance to play different teams, travel a little bit? Like, is, is it the whole package, or what are you looking forward to most? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would have pretty neat experience. I think one of our players is from Toronto, if I, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Cole, Cole Kitcherzinski. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know how much of a factor that was in that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly... I think we're playing uh, Trinity Western, if I remember correctly. And uh, from what I understand, that's one of the top teams in, in Canada uh, perennially. And so I think that's what Sproul was looking for, some really good competition. Nice, nice. And I, I think the ball will be a little bit different. If they use, uh, we use a Mikasa. You guys are Molten, I think? Yeah. Nice, advantage us. So that'll be good. Hopefully fans will, will come out and, and see the show. And uh Hopefully get a chance to, you know, tackle you because, you know, you can carry a conversation on while doing that at Bali. It's very impressive. So, uh, <laughs> or hopefully you make some new friends in Toronto, too. Yeah, hopefully. Awesome. Well, thanks again for taking the time. I know you're you're busy. You're out for a hike today and doing all that great stuff. So, we really appreciate you taking the time and looking forward to seeing you guys later on in December. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. All right. Thanks, Nate.